Our guest today is Jason Richardson, who really is a household name at this point for anyone paying attention to the guitar community. He began a touring career super young at 17 with All Shall Perish, and since then he's played in a multitude of bands, including Born of Osiris, Chelsea Grin, and most recently he replaced the late Ollie Herbert in All That Remains. Along with his self-titled work, which is jaw-droppingly incredible, Jason has amassed a back catalog of work that cements his place as a legend in the shred guitar community. I present you, Jason Richardson. Well, Jason Richardson, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Hi. Welcome to the Riff Hard Hi. Podcast, Dale. Thank you. Yeah. It's actually one of our first episodes ever, so thank you for taking the time to make it cool. Nice. No problem. So it's been a minute since I've seen you, like two or three years, but in those two or three years, a shitload has happened for you. Uh, yeah, it's been pretty wild, that's for sure. I think we were all at NAM like last couple ones, but then you just disappear and I can never find you. Oh, did I see you at NAM? I don't think so. Not this last one. Okay. I was going to say, <laughs> I didn't remember that. No, that didn't happen. I think we tried and then NAM. Is NAM a lot crazier for you now than it used to be? Oh, yeah. I don't look forward to it at all anymore. I'm glad that there's not one happening this year. <laughs> not to sound jaded or like a dick or anything yeah. like that, but <laughs> it's just a lot. It's, I mean, it's, it's good to be busy, but it's kind of overwhelming. Do you enjoy getting that much attention in like a concentrated period of time? In small bursts, yeah, it's definitely cool. I don't know, it's just, uh, I mean, I don't mind it, obviously, but when it's actually, you're actually like in the moment of doing it, like there, like you're performing and then you have to uh, talk to a million people and then do like a bunch of interviews all just like back to back with like all the chaos of everything that's happening there as well. It's just overwhelming and a lot of stuff all at once. So it's not the worst thing ever, but it's just a lot. There's definitely worse things in life. Yeah, it's definitely not the worst thing by any means at all. It's just a lot when it's actually happening, like in the moment all at once. And then I'll have to go find somewhere quiet and just sit down for like a little bit to like prepare myself to go go back out and like do it again. I've done the past two. We didn't have a booth this past year, but we had one the year before. Yeah, I ran into Joey for a second, and that's what he said. I was like, you never hit me up. He's like, "Are you? do you have a booth this year? He's like, no, because I, I would have hit you up if we had one. We decided not to, just because, for me personally, just having it once is like, you prove you're a real company, and then kind of don't have to do it again. It's like Toontrack never has a booth. No, They're a real company. Fractal has never been once. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. It's like... I don't think it's mandatory and it's so fucking expensive. Like, yeah. holy shit. Yeah. I mean, what if it like just doesn't happen again? Because like w maybe all these companies are going to realize like at this one year, like all the money that they're going to save and they're still going to have the same amount of sales like anyway, probably because all that stuff could just be done over the phone. You know, there's something to be said for that because um, we had a really huge project in December. I'm talking about URM, not Riff Hard. We had a really huge project in December and we decided we're going to put the money into that and we're not going to have a booth and we're going to go there anyways and walk around and network and all that stuff, but no booth. We'll just see. It's a test because we did one the year before. Let's not do one this year and see if it affects anything. And we just got in bigger and bigger and bigger this year. So it's like, I don't know what it's for. <laughs> If you want to have the best stand, you're basically paying the price of a house. If not more. If not more. Well, a really nice house. <laughs> I mean, because I know some of the Ernie Ball's numbers and it's like... Astronomical, I'm sure. Yeah. Like, it's stupid the amount of money that's being spent just to go and have a booth there and uh, entertain, like, just like... Because they don't do any of the sales at the booth, especially now that they, they downsized it a little bit the past couple of years. 
and like all the important stuff happens like up in a meeting room like that no one can get to unless you know where it is nothing happens down on the booth it's just for like entertainment purposes for like just the, the normal crowd that's there it's an expensive party speaking of ernie ball weren't you telling me once that that was your one and only goal think so i believe so that would have been a hot minute ago it was like five or six or seven years ago when you told me that yeah so how did you end up landing that that was before like you joined a really big band and like released your album or the plug-in or any of that stuff that was like yeah that would have that predated that stuff well i think i still had like an endorsement technically from them i had only had like a couple guitars i think at that point but that would have had to have been like evolve days when we were mixing that ep back in like 2012 or something like that i think holy shit yeah evolve came out in 2012 i'm pretty certain and we were doing all the mixing and stuff at the beginning of that year because it came out on warp tour that year you're right i remember that now i had to take a break for like a week because of a death in the family and that happened in january yeah it would have been like eight years ago now <laughs> isn't that nuts yeah that's weird to think about that's been that long now the evolve ep is really really interesting to me because like i kind of consider it the jason richardson ep in a way it was pretty much it was me and dan primarily for the most part and then the last song on there don't ask don't tell that, that like huge ballad one that turned out really sick that one had like at least like five or six people that put writing into it me included but that one that one was kind of like an incestuous song just like a ton of different random people all contributing to that one but the other four were me and dan i think it was like half and half i think he wrote two and i wrote two and then i did all the programming but there's only five tracks on that ep actually i think that was a huge upgrade for them thanks it was it was cool it's cool <laughs> i still think it's cool to this day but the thing that i thought was interesting was you joined and then it sounded kind of like you like you everywhere you go you kind of take your style with you i think that one thing that guitar players talk about all the time is uh how do you develop your own sound you've always had one where do you think that even comes from in the first place like did you try to create your own sound or is it just something that came out of you well i mean you can obviously always tell like who influences who like or at least you should be able to for the most part but you don't want to be like a carbon copy clone of anyone like have it sound you know like a b-rate or like a forgotten like pre-pro track that they never put out because it wasn't good <laughs> enough or something like that. There are a lot of those in the world. <laughs> yeah, there are. But you don't, I mean, you obviously like, that's never the goal. But I think with me, it was, I was trying to figure out something that I hadn't necessarily like really heard before, which was at the time I wanted everything to sound, because there's, I always loved the huge symphonic, like orchestral elements of everything and all the electronic stuff, even not just uh, orchestral stuff, like all the sense and stuff like that that you can put in there, in there too. But I had never heard, like, the extent of, like, what, say, a band like Dumu Borgir does it, where they actually, like, you know, have, like, a huge 70-piece or 90-piece or whatever it is orchestra recorded. But then, like, actual, like, prog stuff, too, going on, where the guitars are just as crazy as the orchestra. Because they would always keep it kind of tame. I still love their stuff, but there would be all these crazy orchestral runs happening and the guitar players just, like, playing power chords or something like that. You know what I mean? Not that there's anything wrong with that. Which is great for what they do. Yeah, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I was I would always hear like those crazy orchestral runs that are being matched, like the double kick or something. It's like, why doesn't that dude just play that on guitar too? That'd be so sick. I always wanted to, that like level of both kind of happening. And there's probably some band that, out there that's done it that I haven't heard yet, but I just wanted to try and figure out how to do that in my own way, kind of. Where did you 
or how did you train your ear to understand the orchestral stuff? Reason I'm asking is because we've all heard metal bands who put orchestras on there and like they'll be in the wrong key. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the harmonies will be totally wrong. Like it'll all just be wrong. And I don't mean <laughs> wrong in a good way. I mean, it'll just be like clashing shit everywhere that's unintentionally clashing. People can't hear it. Like the orchestra repeating just what the riffs are doing exactly or just holding out a pad like not really music just like a shitty attempt and that's not knocking anyone i just think it's really really hard to develop the ear for the way that orchestral music actually works and like what the right notes are and what the wrong notes are and then arranging it across like from a guitar to synth and orchestra that's there's a lot of stuff to balance and i've never really heard you make those mistakes that i've heard so many other people make which means to me Either you're a freak or you really trained your ears or a little bit of both. But I'm just wondering, like, where that came from. Well, I mean, I honestly, in my personal opinion, like, I've gone back and listened to uh, the programming, like, isolated that I've made even for my last album. And, like, compared to the stuff that I'm making right now for the next release, like, in my opinion, this new stuff that I'm making is so much more in-depth and better. Like, I don't think I've made, like, or I honestly, like, really wrapped my head around and understood it until, like, this past, like, year, honestly. Because I, I was able to get my whole setup working a lot more efficiently and I've just gotten more libraries and done more research and listened to stuff to just more critically and like a lot of film scores and things like that, trying to just pick out what it is. I even like went to the extent now where I like, I printed out like a layout of what an actual orchestra is set up. So that way, if I have any questions about where stuff needs to be in the mix, I can just reference that and make sure I have it in the right spot. So that way everything's like orientated correctly. There's also other, not to plug other like companies, because I know URM does this a lot, but there's Mix with the Masters where they'll have like Alan Meyerson, the guy who mixes Hans Zimmer stuff on there. And I've been watching some of his videos to try and just get ideas of how some of this stuff is supposed to sit in there better. And that's, that was, that's been pretty useful as well. I should probably go watch that. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, he'll even go through, it's this pretty much the same exact kind of style that like URM does where they shows like the screen capture, he goes through all his plugins that he's using and stuff like that, like how he has like a three computer Pro Tools setup for like 700 something tracks and how he buses it all down with his S6 and all of that kind of stuff. It's really useful information. And then Hans even has some videos out on like some of that stuff too. Although I felt like his maybe like, I feel like he was holding back. His was more like a glorified interview. Yeah, I feel like he was definitely holding back some of his secrets for sure. Like some of it is cool. Like that's how I started Tendonitis. Honestly, I was watching one of his ones. His are on Masterclass, I believe. Yes. And he's got, he has one, a couple or one on mix with the Masters as well. But that one's even just more of a glorified interview where... He doesn't divulge exactly everything that's going on. But the the Masterclass one is definitely more useful than his Mix with the Masters one. There was something he said. He said he's never written any melody that you can't play with one hand on a piano. Like, ever. Like, any of his melodies. They can all be played with just one hand on a piano. So, when he said that, I was like, fuck. And then I just put my hand... I had a piano open while I was watching it in case inspiration struck. I just put my hand on the piano. And then that very first, like, piano line in tendonitis just came out. And I was like, shit, I have to stop watching this and just let this happen. I can actually hear that now that you say that about him, because every single thing that he writes is so like digestibly awesome. Yes. I think that's like the best thing about him is no matter how epic or grand or complex or whatever it gets, like there's still always this central theme that just... It's easy. Yeah. Like you said, you can play it on one hand. Yeah. It just like sticks in your head the first time you hear it. So I always try to keep stuff like that in mind when I'm writing now too. Even for like the like the crazy stuff that's happening, I always 
that's always in the back of my head. And I know there's always going to be those trolls and elitists that like disagree with that kind of stuff, but that's still in there whenever I'm writing. Yeah, but they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll just say that they're wrong. How do you work that in with the crazy guitar stuff? Like, how do you, how do you take something that's you know flying by that fast and has so many notes, but then keep that sort of idea of uh, making it digestible? Uh, there's usually something going on in the background. Like uh, like with programming or something like that, maybe it's the same chord progression or the crazy part is like the same chord progression as the melody that happened earlier. Or like I somehow figure out a way to keep it going underneath of the crazy part that's happening in the background, things like that. When you're writing those variations, like is it a conscious thing? Like I've got my main idea, let's make like 20 variations and see what works. Or is it more like this idea is cool and then just keep going? Yeah, I say more of that one. I kind of just feel it out like as the song goes. I try to keep everything that I write, which is why it takes me so long and I haven't put anything out. I just try to never force anything. And it's kind of biting me in the ass right now because if I'm like sitting down and working on something, like if I can tell I don't like it, I don't want to just like keep sitting there and trying to pump stuff out because I'll just come back to it later and just be like, eh, I just need to start this over anyway. But I, I just wasted five hours or something like that on an idea that, sucks i'm not even going to use so i try to prevent that from happening but it's taking me a little too long now like i'm getting frustrated with myself but i haven't put anything out since tendonitis but i do have a bunch of stuff written right now and it's definitely coming together but it's slow and i need to figure out some way to get back to being like super motivated and get it all finished it's getting there definitely i have, I have like two songs finished right now if you know what i mean like the whole thing is there but i'll probably still change a little bit of it up in those two and then i have at least like three or four more like one and a half to three minute something ideas that are almost finished. So it'll be done before the end of the year for sure. I'm giving myself that deadline because it's it's just taking me too long. Being able to take a step back once you've made an idea is how all the best stuff usually happens. Like if you work on something for like ever and you get like a like say like two minutes down or something like that of a song that you're really stoked on, but then you're just stumped and you don't know where to take it. Like if you take can take like a week or two off from that and then come back to it with like after not hearing it for a while and fresh ideas. Like, you're hearing it almost completely differently. For me, that's always worked the best. Like, if I'm able to get something started, take a break from it for a little bit, and then come back to it, the idea usually comes, like, a lot quicker than it would me just sitting there trying to pump it out and fin get the song finished as fast as possible. I actually agree that you get to that point where it's just like, I don't know what goes next, and you force it, that's when songs kind of turn to shit. And people notice that. Like, obviously, your fans aren't in the room with you, so they don't know what's going through your head. But I feel like you can tell when bands phone that shit in or try too hard to make it happen. Yeah, it usually sounds forced. Yeah, like when sometimes when people tell me, like, yeah, I wrote this whole album in two weeks, wrote and recorded, and I'm just like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it sounds like that too. Usually not a good thing. <laughs> so how do you know, like when you're working on something, how do you know the difference between this sucks, I shouldn't continue it, I'm forcing it versus I'm just being lazy right now and should continue? <laughs> that definitely is a little hard. I feel like for me at least, like, because I do, I like listening to stuff I write. I don't see a point in writing music if you don't want to listen to it. There's some people who are just like, oh, I can't stand listening to the shit I write. It's like, why'd you write it? <laughs> Fair enough. Like, if you don't like it, then why do you want to put it out? For me, at least, usually one of my rules for when I'm writing is, like, if it's not making, like, my hair stand up on my arm, or there's not, like, a moment where I just, like, there's that, like, aha moment where things start snowballing. If that doesn't happen, like, relatively soon after I start working on something, like, say, like, a few hours, then it might not necessarily be the best idea. But I also, like, I always have to remind myself, too, like, when you first start an idea, 
Like it always does sound kind of dinky at first because you know there's either just like one guitar part or you're just programming drums or feeling out like a groove and it's just really limited like at that moment in time. But the second you start putting like more layers in there, like the actually like the second guitar harmony, bass, maybe like one layer of programming, like some hits or something like that, then you start hearing the picture coming together and that makes me get way more stoked too. And sometimes I forget that. Like when I'm working on something in the moment, I'm just like, this kind of sounds like shit. But then you start adding the extra elements in there and then it starts becoming like a full song. Then that aha moment can happen to me. If you start adding all that stuff and the aha moment never happens, then I guess it's a safe bet. The idea sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, writing's so subjective. Like any, pretty much any time, anytime anyone asks me, like, "Yo, how do you, how did you write that?" I'm just like, "I wrote it." <laughs> yeah, I was like, "I don't know." This is like electron somewhere, I guess, up here, <laughs> and they did some sort of weird movement thing, and then my brain did that. Like, I don't know. But usually when people do ask me that, though, like, I can definitively remember the circumstances that I was in that and my thought process as to, like, how I created this riff. But I can't really, like, explain, like, why it happened. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's why it's so hard to teach writing to people. You can teach all the technical aspects of it, but that one thing, like that spark, you can't really teach that. Nope. That's kind of like they just got to figure it out for themselves based off, I guess, prior information that they received as to how someone else did it. So what's the ratio, I guess, of like how many songs you keep to how many false starts you get? Ooh, like I was saying earlier, I try to pretty much keep everything that I'm using. So, I mean, there's probably going to only be like maybe like one or two things that don't get used on this next release that I put out. I mean, I'm not one of those dudes that'll just like go and sit there and just try and write as much as possible. Like that would, I know some guys are really good at that. Like they're, they'll just go and just like record just like tons of different ideas. And then they'll have so like an overload of songs and then they'll just pick their best ones out of that. Like I've, I've never been one to, to, to do that for some reason. I think it's just cause I'm so picky and the programming takes up a lot of time too. Cause some of those libraries are so huge and I like going through like all of the sounds in them and trying, cause I don't want to just settle on the first thing that I pick. But sometimes you do need to just put your foot down and be like, all right, let's progress with the song. Stop sitting here. You've already been here for two hours, like trying to find this one sound. So let's let's keep it moving. That happens to me a little too often. Too much stuff. I guess that's where experience comes in, right? Like experience is what will tell you, all right, it's time to keep going. Mm -hmm. One thing I've noticed with a lot of amateur musicians, uh, and this is same with engineers and mixers and try to get this through to people but they spend way too long on the same songs i feel like it's like the classic local band curse to have like the same eight songs for 10 years or something or a mixer that's learning to be mixing the same two songs for a year or something so i understand being super picky and all that but you also got to know when to move on and i think sounds like you know that did you ever have that problem of spending way too long on things that maybe weren't worth spending way too long on for sure i think we all have but i'm probably doing that now more than i should like because i there's definitely been moments where i need to just be like all right you need to just you need to just keep moving with the song like stop messing around with like this one layer of programming and just actually make progress but it's fun doing that stuff so i just kind of it's like this weird balance where i just like have to be like all right keep moving with this and i can maybe come back to this later this one idea how much stuff makes it from your writing demos to the actual release? Programming-wise or just songs in general? 
like say you went to Taylor Larson to mix it and he's just like, oh, that was cool before. We don't need to re-record it. Okay, so yeah, with the last album, we retracked everything because I definitely didn't have anywhere near as good of a setup as I do now. But I was actually, I've been thinking about this next release and how we're going to make it work with the current situation that's happening. I mean, maybe by the end of the year, everything will be closer to back to normal. We don't know, like, it's way too soon to tell right now. But I have been contemplating, like, okay, maybe Luke and I could find, you know, like a safe place to record drums out here in L.A. where we both are once everything's written. And then I could just send him my pre-pro session with, like, you know, all the guitars I already have tracked and all the programming because everything's already all there. And we pretty much have the same, like, most of the same plugins. So it might be easier to just do that and then like send him the session and just have him tweak it, like stuff that like everything that I already have. That's what I've been thinking in my head. I haven't talked to him about it yet because I still haven't finished writing everything, but that's kind of what I think might end up happening just because of like just the world situation right now. For people listening far into the future, we're recording this on May 22nd, 2020. Yes. (laughs) Right in the middle of COVID-19. Yes, a global pandemic. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I would say pretty much, or now, probably most of what I'm recording, just like right now while I'm working on it, will probably be kept. That will be the more efficient way to do things. But with the first album, yeah, we retracked literally the entire thing. Like I had everything written out and pre-proed, and then I went out to Bethesda uh, in his with his stu- or in his studio, and retra- we retracked all of it, all the guitars. What's different about your rig now? Like, tell us about some of the upgrades. Everything, <laughs> literally everything. Like when I when I'm doing the Twitch stuff now, I'm, or especially with the when I'm doing studio stuff for like all the Pro Tools sessions, I'm using three computers at the same time. Like it's gotten pretty obnoxious this setup. Like I think back then all I had was like an inbox third gen mini. I think that's what I had to get guitar into my uh, computer and out to my monitors. I had decent monitors then. Even still, I had some Genelec 8040As. I think. I remember. But but I sold those within the past couple of years and upgraded to the Amphion 118s and then a Good choice. Yeah, and then a with a paired with a Cord uh T Toby or Cord Toby power amp. What about the cabling? Did you get like any special cabling or anything? The speaker cables for for the power amp, I don't know what they are, but I got them from um a dude that tunes rooms professionally for a living. Got it. So like people like pay him to come in there and like analyze their room and tune it like frequency wise and all. So he knows what he's doing. And I just got the speaker cables from him. It was one of Taylor's buddies that I bought the power amp through at that time because he was a dealer for them as well. But other stuff like I have like the Pro Tools H or HD now with two HDX cards because I want to make sure I have enough headroom for doing like the huge orchestral stuff. All right, there's a UAD Octo, and then I have a slave machine now for all my VSTs. You know, with a VN Ensemble Pro over a closed network and all of that. So you got it going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not fucking around. It's gotten obnoxious, but I love it. Because towards the end of writing the last album, I got so sick of printing everything to audio just to free up resources so I could keep making more tracks. That would happen like every 15 instruments approximately. Because yeah, my computer then was still pretty sick. I think I had like, at the time, maybe 32 gigs of RAM, but all SSD drives for the most part. But uh, now I've upgraded it to 128. God, that's a lot of RAM. Yeah, I like plugins. Then I I want like all of those just to have more than enough headroom for all of the VSTs. So and then my slave machine is 128 as well, and I think that's 14 core with an i9 board, and then a 10 gigabit network card. My switch is 10 gigabit too, but I need to upgrade my Mac. I, I want to get one of the new ones eventually, but I need to save up. Save up like 50 grand. <laughs> I don't need that one. I know the the most specked out one is that much because it's got two of those insanely obnoxious video cards that are in there. 
You know the stand for the monitor? It's it's like a thousand dollars. Yeah, I'm not gonna get the monitor. I don't need the monitor. I don't really need like video resolution. That's not what I'm going for with this stuff. I like having the four the four monitors though, because just the surface area. Like I'll have my edit window on one, MIDI window on the other, and then mix window and usage and like all of that stuff all over on the left, and then the slave machine over on the right for all the VSTs. And it's just super annoying to be opening and closing stuff all the time. So that's why I have the four monitor set up now. That makes sense. Even with all that power, do you encounter CPU issues ever? If I do, it's just it's on the Mac because of plugins and stuff like that. But usually no. It's been I haven't had any issues so far any of the new stuff that I'm working on. I think the most I've got to is I've had like one HDX card almost maxed out on its DSP and like half of my voice is used. I think I can have like 512 total and I've I think one song is maybe like 280 now. So I have more than enough headroom for all of the stuff that I've been trying to do recently. And then even the biggest song, I have to have this one that kind of sounds like I wanted it to sound like Lion King metal. I don't know. I've posted a couple <laughs> clips of it on uh, my Instagram, but it starts out with kalimbas and like marimbas and bongos and all of this stuff. And then it goes into like, and I, then I use the Lorada on it. So it's eight string too, just to be even funnier. It's essentially, I tried to like keep it like hose down kind of vibe part. Like it's going to be that like part two where it's got like the random tangents in there. There's like a jazz one, but it's more like fusion this time and less elevator, if that makes sense. Yeah, I know what you mean. Less Muzak. Yeah, like hose down was like a stab at like just being funny elevator jazz. But this one's more fusion slash like it's got like a Holdsworth kind of style solo in it this time. I just want to make one comment about the HDX cards and we can move on from that. One thing I've noticed, every time you upgrade a computer, the sessions just get more complex. <laughs> and then you always end up in the same place eventually where you need more and more and more. Like your needs expand to fit the amount of power and memory available. Yeah, or this most recent update, I don't know, have you got downloaded 2020 yet? Pro Tools? Yeah. No, no, I don't have that one. It's so sick. They like fixed it. <laughs> it's about yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, I mean they yeah, like I can tell a difference. It's probably at least on my OS, what am I on? Yeah, I'm on 10.13.4, so high Sierra still, and I just upgrade I updated the 2020 and they finally I, they're like over a decade late, but there's finally folder tracks and like routing folders and it's like the most stable that it's ever been for me at least on this operating system. Dude, so people say that Pro Tools is terrible for programming. It's not. They just don't know how to use it. Yeah, I, I never thought it was. Yeah, exactly. There's no wrong DAW. It's just the one you know how to use. Except for Reaper. Pro Tools is the only one that I know of, though, where you can have hardware acceleration to offload DSP to make everything run a little more cohesive. Like, you it, on your usage tab, you can see, like, Mixer DSPs on there because they label it all pretty well if you have the usage window completely expanded. But I'm pretty certain that the HDX cards also host all the actual, like, mixing. I can tell a significant difference, like, even when I'm just listening to, uh, just, like, Tidal or something on my computer. Without Pro Tools open, it takes the PCI card as, as outputting the audio. But as soon as I open Pro Tools, that takes over the HDX card, and then the music is coming out of, like, my optical input into the interface or something like that. And there's a drastic difference in the way that they sound. Like, the HDX card is just, like, this huge, massive, full, like, warm thing. And then when it switches over to the default output out of the optical cable, it just, like, shrinks and gets, like, way thinner sounding. It's definitely a significant difference, though, for sure, in the way that the two 
sound. So usually when guitar players start getting into like recording and programming, they uh, kind of stop playing guitar so much. Yes, I can agree with that. <laughs> that happened to me when I got really into studio stuff. I think it's natural because, you know, when you start playing guitar, that's the only thing you do. You can do that 12 hours a day and not have to worry about it. But with all the stuff you're doing, programming, knowing your gear really well, and then also being able to play the shit you do plus your band, how do you balance all that and make sure that you're not stagnating in any way? I definitely don't play guitar as much as I used to, which kind of sucks. But actually, more recently, I've been trying, or like within the past couple weeks, past two, three weeks, I've been trying to fix that. I got two new prototypes for future guitar models that are going to be released, like essentially my next version of my guitar. And that is always inspiring. Definitely, I played guitar for like eight hours when those got here. It like tore my fingers up because I hadn't been practicing that much, like ever. I probably hadn't done a session like that in months. What does not that much mean for you? I mean, I've gone as long as like a week or two without like really playing a whole lot. Like maybe just like I'll pick it up and play like one like little thing and then just go and do something else. But breaks are good. For sure. But when it comes to playing this kind of stuff, at least, that's definitely too long. Like, I can always tell a, a significant difference. And then I have to, like, work back up, and it's really annoying because it just goes out the window that fast. And then you lose your calluses and shit, too. And then you start getting blisters again, and that's really fucking annoying. But, yeah, I mean, not that much for me. It would probably be, like, less than an hour a day, honestly. Like, I've definitely gone through phases of that. But within the past couple of weeks, I'm definitely trying to stay way more on top of, like, actually playing guitar. But... Having the new ones really helps motivate that. I understand not everyone can just get free music mans all the time, which is a huge plus. <laughs> yeah, but what about in the early days before that was happening? Well, I hadn't played guitar quite as much. I started taking it seriously when I was 12, and I'll be 29 at the end of July. So, I mean, back then it was still, you know, way newer. So I'm not going to say it was any more fun then than it is now, but I was still, you know figuring stuff out back then, like when I was still in high school. It was, I guess, more of a challenge still, I guess, at the time. And I just wanted to keep going with it and keep getting better and better and better at it. And now it's, I feel like, maintaining my technique and then trying to write. Like, because I don't really want to be able to play faster. It's not, there's no point. It's just like a sport at that point. And like I used to, there's definitely been phases where I was playing an exercise and I was just like, how fast can I get this? And I got some JP chromatic exercise to like, 300 or 310 at 16th notes just to see if I could do it. Jesus. Uh, and I did. I don't really see a point in being able to play that fast now other than just having like a like headroom to make stuff that's not that fast easier, if that makes sense. Like there's because there's a threshold, but like if you can play something like that, then it's going to make everything else that you're doing that's not that fast like that much easier. So that would be like the main reason to just even even attempt to work up to a speed like that is just to make everything else that you're doing less stressful. And it just makes like, say, like if you have to play, I think what it hose down is that like the ending run in that I think is at like 220 or 225 maybe, 16th notes. So it would make something like that less stressful if I'm able to play something at like 300. What goes into maintaining? Playing it slow a lot, honestly, and then just gradually working it up. I mean, everyone everyone already knows that trick for the most part, unless you're like a brand new guitar player. Dude, everyone knows it, but it's like, they don't want to do it. Yeah, they want it to be something else or like a hack or like something you can install, <laughs> but it doesn't work that way. Like, Because people always ask me that question, especially with lessons and stuff, when I, whenever I'm doing them. And I'm just like, I mean, you probably already know this, but you're just impatient. 
and you don't want to do it. Or they're like, ah, I can't get sweeping down. And I'm just like, well, how long have you been trying, like working on it actively? They're like, oh, two months. I'm just like, well, <laughs> there you go. Like, <laughs> you just have to be patient and just keep working on it and it'll, and it'll come. And then I'll tell them, I was like, yeah, it probably took me like two, three years of strict practicing when I was in high school before I could finally say like, yes, like I can do this now. I can confidently say I can do this well. It's really clean and it's really fast and I'm efficient at it. Probably took two, three years of strict practicing a few hours almost every day of working on stuff towards getting to that point. If it was easy to do, everyone would do it, I think. If it was fun and simple and not like a ton of work, I think everyone would just do it, obviously. I try to always notice if I'm doing that, playing stuff fast because you're impatient and you want to get it down. Like, so I'll sometimes spend like 30 or 45 minutes and I'm just like, why is this so fucking hard? Like, why can't I get this down? And then I'll realize that I haven't even like, I've barely played it slow, literally at all. And then I'll do the metronome thing with my phone where I play at half speed and I just gradually bump it up like five or 10 BPM each time. And then I have it down in like 20 minutes every single time. I'll just tell myself, but like, why aren't you just listening to your own advice and doing what you tell other people to do? And then I do it and it works. And I have it down like way faster than I would if I were just sit there, keep playing, trying to play it fast as possible. Sometimes with recording or if I'm writing, I'll always re-record it full speed. But if I have, if I come up with a really, really crazy idea that I can't play yet because I just wrote it, I'll just track it half speed and then 200% it and then go put it in place where it needs to be so I can hear it. And then if, if it sounds sick, I'll learn how to play it full speed and re-record it. But if it sounds like shit, I didn't just waste three hours practicing a part or even a week maybe sometimes, you know, depending on how hard it is, just so I could hear this idea, just to know if I can like it or not. So you had to be careful with that idea because you could shoot yourself in the foot sometimes. I definitely did that with a couple parts on the album. The country part and hose down, I did that with. I shot myself in the foot with that one. By making it too difficult? Yeah, it's just too fast. Like, it's just fucked. It's so hard. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I should have tracked it 10 BPM slower. But, you know, with recording, you punch in and get everything, like, perfect. So, but playing it in a live context, it's just hard. It's so fast. And then Titan is another song on my album that, where the riff is just so fast. Like, when Luke and I play it live, we play it 5 BPM slower just to make it, like, a little bit easier. It's still fast as shit. It's manageable. It's still fast as shit, but it's just, like, that much easier. <laughs> People say that when adrenaline kicks in, which it does on stage that our motor skills decrease by between 40 and 60%. Really? Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Like that's why when, you know, law enforcement or military are learning how to shoot accurately, they try to make it as tense of a training as possible because you can shoot at a target all you want and hit it perfectly, but the moment that you're actually scared, that makes sense. Yeah, everything changes. It's it's been studied that it's a very similar thing going on in a musician's brain. When they get on stage, it's not that they're scared, but they still get that fight or flight kind of response and adrenaline spikes and therefore their motor skills go down. That makes it that much more important to be able to have that headroom like you were talking about. Yeah. But then also not do things that will make your motor skills even worse, like partying too hard the night before or something. Yeah, I try to be pretty careful with that on the road. I don't really drink like a whole lot when I'm on tour. Not very much at all. It kind of depends on... If I, er, hmm. I mean, I definitely do like sometimes, but it's not like an everyday thing by any means. And I'm not getting like, you know, blacked out or and like not remembering shit. Like I'm over that. That's just not fun at all. 
to me. Some people like that a lot. I'm definitely not into that. I can't do it. And also other people notice that, you know, like you can develop a reputation for being a lush. It's not a good reputation to have. Nope. I mean, I've seen some pretty high functioning alcoholics, like impressively, (laughs) impressively high functioning. And I'm just like, I don't know how you're doing this, but you are. Practice, dude. Yeah. <laughs> You're just not patient enough. Yeah. Just got to practice more. But I feel like they went through just this miserable phase of just like, all right, I guess I just have to be like a blackout drunk for like a month and just deal with all the hangovers and being dehydrated nonstop and just unhealthy as shit. But I don't want to do that. Practice drinking enough to get to that threshold where I'm just like, okay with it. <laughs> it sounds expensive and miserable. <laughs> it sounds terrible. I don't miss that aspect of touring one bit, actually. Unless you have self-control, it's easy to fall back into. Because a lot of times it's just well, because there. Because of the boredom. Yeah. Depending on your like catering budget, a lot of time it's just there. And you don't have to do anything to get it. It's just always there. Before you joined All That Remains and you were just touring with them, I'm sure you kept shit like that in mind. Like when you're a sideman, not in the band, like about not being a fuck up and remaining professional, right? Like that had to be on your mind. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And plus, I think that was a Europe tour, too, in winter. So I definitely wasn't trying to drink a shitload on that one by any means at all. Yeah, that's definitely something you should pay attention to, especially if you're not, like, an official member of something yet. You don't want to give a bad impression or be annoying or be like, why the fuck do we hire this guy? Or anything like that. That happens all the time. I know. (laughs) Especially in our realm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So this question is for guitar players out there who are not looking to do their own thing, but are looking to play for somebody else. You know, you obviously have done it all, which is really, really cool. But typically it's like either or for guitar players. Either they're like really creative and like dominant musically and got to do their own thing, or they're like, they go along well and could play for other people. But like, as far as being able to play for other people, what would you recommend people get good at so that they do make a good impression and don't get, passed over well a lot of it has to do with like obviously you need to be able to play the songs that's important but it's more important to be able to just like gel with the other members of the band and everyone that you're going to be surrounded with in like a, a bus or a van for like a month at a time like if you can't get along with them then you're just shit out of luck and nobody's gonna like you like that's almost more important than being able to play the songs i feel like if someone can like play the songs well but they're like really, really, really awesome to hang out with. But if there's someone that can play the song perfect, but they're just like a robot and have like no personality, they're most likely going to choose the person that can play the songs well, but it's way more fun to hang out with than someone who can play the songs perfect, but is just like a wall. You know what I mean? Yeah. Do you miss touring at all? Like given uh, COVID? Yeah, it's definitely a lot of fun playing shows and stuff all every night, especially if you, you know, you can be comfortable too, like... What do you mean by comfortable? Like in a tour bus. Okay. Yeah, where you know you like you have your own bed. You can get away from people if you need to. There's air conditioning. Watch TV. Play video games. Set your laptop up and get work done. There's a pisser there. You don't ever have to worry about pissing in a bottle. Although if you wake up in the middle of the night and you have to shit, you're kind of out of luck. Have you mastered that one? Shitting in a bottle. I've only hot bagged a couple times in like a decade of touring. I've been fortunate enough to wear that. That hasn't been a, a thing really, but it has happened. Because I mean. Food poisoning's real. That can happen. You never, no one ever intends for it to happen. It's not fun. It, like you don't want, no one ever wants to do it. But 
you know, duty <laughs> duty calls, and if it's just like stabbing your insides, and you literally you don't think you can wait until the bus can pull over at a rest stop or a truck stop or something, then you just got to do it. <laughs> What is it with touring in Italy? I think I talked to you about this, Jason, a few months ago. Yeah, touring in Italy is awful. Last time I was there, the whole fucking country was on <laughs> fire. Mount Etna was smoking. Dude, it was just awful. It looked like it was, It was like I think, 90 degrees Fahrenheit or somewhere around there. It was anywhere from 90 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And it looked like what was causing the fires was just assholes flicking their cigarette butts because it was so sporadic and there was no like pattern to it. You would just be driving down the highway and there's like, oh, there's a fire there. You go a little bit further, and it's like, oh, there's another fire. It's like, oh, that one's massive, but it's not connected to any of those other ones that we just saw. So I think a lot of it at that time when I was there was just literally people flicking their cigarette butts on the side of the road, and it was just so hot and dry that everything was catching on fire. And then Mount Etna was literally smoking as we were driving past it, too. <laughs> That's fun. So it was just very disconcerting, that drive, because we woke up to, like, fire truck sirens, helicopters, and a huge plume of smoke outside of our hotel and then there was like a shitload of traffic and they had cut through a barrier to like divert traffic through a median. Like it was sketch. <laughs> Could you actually see the smoke coming out of the mountain? Yes. Mm -hmm. That's kind of scary. Yeah. It wasn't a lot, but you could still see it coming out. It was just like a little bit of this like white smoke trail coming out of the top of the mountain as we were driving past it. But then I looked up online and it's still an active volcano. So apparently that's just a, I think that's just a normal thing and people just deal with it. They just live there next to a actively smoking volcano i gotta say though that dude going to italy to visit is a whole different story i just have to say it's an incredible place to visit but the tour experience leaves a little bit to be desired mm -hmm. basically <laughs> yeah i mean it's beautiful like I, i've fortunately been able to go to rome and go see the Colosseum and all of that kind of stuff like getting to see that was really awesome and uh one of the places i played last year uh, on that Dream Theater tour with my solo stuff was like probably the coolest venue I've ever played ever. It was literally like ruins with like, like it was literally an old Coliseum, like torn down Coliseum where you, on this huge mountain cliff where you could see like all of the city and like the, like it was beautiful, especially at night. But everything else that has to go with touring logistic wise that day, with actually like getting places and maneuvering and like making sure everything runs well was. One of the worst experiences literally ever. But that was still, like, probably the coolest venue I've ever played was that show. I think it was in Turin, Turin, Italy. That venue was so sick. Speaking of Dream Theater and that tour, how much of a mind blower was that? Uh, it was pretty weird. You never think something like that's going to happen ever. Like, the shows were incredible. The shows were, like, so awesome. Like, playing, like, a few th couple thousand people, if not more, like, every single night. Just, like, my solo stuff. Just me and Luke up there you never think that that kind of shit's gonna happen and then getting to watch dream theater every night too with an in-ear mix from their monitor guy <laughs> it's pretty wild it was definitely a surreal experience but again as like the logistics though of making that tour happen because i had to pay for everything on my own and we weren't getting like it wasn't that was our first time over there and i'm sure as, as both of you guys know anytime a project has a first tour Anywhere, <laughs> no matter where it is. You're eating it. You just kind of have to take what you can get and just deal with it. Yeah, because there's like 80 other people on the list that they could take. Mm -hmm. And so you're lucky to be there. Yeah, exactly. So it was definitely an investment. Like that tour wasn't profitable like at all. There's no actual profit made from that. So it was just straight investment to be a, being able to like come back over there 
eventually and then keep building this project's name because that's our only european tour that we've done off this project so that's a pretty good first one to have on paper it's interesting that you call it an investment well yeah i spent a bunch of money and then didn't get any back from it and so that's pretty much what an investment is like you're spending money to help it grow so i'll be able to come back yeah but the thing is a lot of musicians a lot of musicians and i i agree with you this is totally how i was taught about entering a new market take what you can get and build from there and you you got to take what you can get there's no way around it but i think there's a lot of misconceptions around musicians who think that that means you're getting screwed but i don't i don't think it does like i said earlier i think if anybody knows how touring works everyone knows that headliners have a long list of possible choices and if they're picking you you're like one of 80 or one of 100 or even one of 10 you're fortunate to be there and it could totally set your career up forever. Not because that one tour is going to get you all the fans you'll ever get, but because it gets the ball rolling basically. Yep, exactly. Next time that we get like a European tour offer for, for anyone, like if anyone sends an offer, they'll be able to see that we went over there with dream theater and played, played to like a few thousand people every single night like that. It'll be look really good for everything future that we're going to be trying to do over there. When you were in it, did you know, were you thinking about it like this is an investment? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I knew going into it that like, because as soon as we got the first email about it, I was just like, okay, this has to happen. There's no way around it. Like, I have to make this work no matter what. So I went into it with the mindset of just like, even if I break even expense wise, I'll be stoked. And if I lose money, whatever, it's fine. Like it just, I have to make this happen no matter what. So do you spend any time, like I know that you were talking about incorporating other styles, like more realistic jazz, you incorporate orchestral, but like when it comes to like guitar playing, guitar playing, do you sit there and actually try to learn like the, I guess, idioms and like things that happen in other styles, like legitimately, or is it kind of just like more by ear thing? If I can find like official transcription of stuff like that, I'll always go and get it and then learn it. Like I do want to check out some of his stuff to get like a better idea of how I could write like my own part like that. Because I've always wanted to incorporate like a random like gypsy section in a song too, but do it properly. I've tried learning a couple Django tunes, but I can never find like decent transcriptions of them anywhere. So I haven't uh, dived fully into that kind of realm of stuff yet. But I've always wanted to learn some of it. I think your note choice, man, your note choice would fit well with Gypsy Jazz, actually, I think. Yeah, I can kind of hear it for sure. There's definitely some weird stuff happening in there. I don't like doing shit by ear. If it wasn't for Pro Tools and being able to stretch the fuck out of everything, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> so you take it and slow it down and just learn it in fragments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did that recently with a, because, uh, you know, Jordan Rudess. I was going to ask you about that. That clip is insane. Yeah, he's been putting clips up and just trying to get other people to like, you know, learn it and do their own thing over it. So I just took that video and I just did that. I downloaded it, imported the audio and Pro Tools and then stretched the fuck out of it. So that way I could actually learn how to play it. Everybody needs to look that video up. I reposted it when you put it up. That video is insane. What's it called? Oh, no, that was just some random lick that he came up with. It was just like, figure this out someone else play it and then i saw him like there was that dude i think he was like a ukulele player maybe yes i believe so so i think as an italian drummer figured out how to put something over top of it too and then so i just recorded the guitar that was just like my phone audio that wasn't even recorded in pro tools or anything like that that's what made it cooler because it was obviously really happening mm -hmm. that's part of what made it cool is like you know oftentimes guitar videos are just fake as fuck yes mm-hmm 
And I mean, sometimes they have to be for certain reasons, like maybe you're making a playthrough for a gear company and it's got to like... Or a music video. Yeah, exactly. It's got to check off certain boxes for the video production. But I think a lot of guitar players put fake stuff out just because they can't play. And so whenever you see something that's like phone audio and it's ridiculous, it's like, fuck yeah, this is real. And that's incredible i always notice a significant difference on instagram in particular when i post a video with just phone audio it will always do like double or triple something that's like a professionally well-made done video always every single time my highest view count on instagram for one video is like of me playing tendonitis just by myself to a metronome with phone audio back around the time when the song came out and that's like probably like 160,000 or like something like that now on there which is pretty insane for an Instagram video, guitar video. It is, but that's what I'm saying. I think people really do appreciate real. I think that on social media, real is currency, basically. Yeah, there's a huge difference, especially with the guitar videos of like a professionally well-made one versus just phone audio. You can tell when it's done because everything syncs up literally perfectly. I did one like that recently that uh, where I learned, I learned an Andre Nieri solo he made his own version of a solo to uh, one of those, I think the Brazilian metal band Angra. He made his own version of one of the solos of that song and he sent me the backing track for it because he put tabs up on his website of his version that he made. And I recorded that like with my streaming setup. So I just opened Streamlabs and like hit record with, so it was using my Sony camera and uh, Axefex just directly into that software. But it was actually me playing though. It wasn't phone audio, but that one still did half decent too. That one didn't do the usual where the well-made well-made recorded one usually gets like significant less traction than just a phone audio one. Well, did you produce it or did you perform it when you... I played, I did zero editing on it at all. It was just directly into there. People can tell. The reason I think that the phone audio does well is because you can hear the pick. Like that's the dead giveaway is whether you can hear pick noise in the room. I agree. Yeah, it's kind of counterintuitive because, you know, everyone would expect that slick ass videos would make all the difference but real i think is what makes all the difference a lot of people can see through it now the more people get called out on it well yeah they feel like they're sitting right next to you and you're just ripping out this crazy shit and it's actually happening it's not some sterilized creation where every single note is i'm saying this as someone who does believe in that kind of recording if necessary like i've got nothing against note by note or editing what you got to edit like sometimes it's just what you got to do <laughs> like you can tell within seconds if the guitar player comes in and they're playing stuff and you're just like all right here we go <laughs> you got to do what you got to do to get the job done I'm, I'm gonna hit record and you're gonna play that note 10 times just by itself and then we're gonna pick the best one <laughs> and then we're gonna do that for the second note and you're gonna play that 10 times and then i'm gonna copy and paste that into where it needs to be and then yeah I've definitely, I, I've seen that happen and had to do it for other people myself. It's Honestly, that's one of the reasons I wanted out. Doing that was like destroying my soul. It's just, I did not sign up for this. Yeah. Like, I didn't sign up to be basically correcting shitty guitar players for the rest of my life. Nope. No, thank you. Yeah. That's, that's not, that's not the goal. So, all right. So speaking of recording, you said that you prefer to record yourself rather than other people, but you've also worked with some pretty awesome mixers and producers. And this question is for people out there who are also engineers who have those kinds of goals. What are you looking for in an engineer? Like, 
I mean, I kind of already know the answer to this because we've worked together, but for everybody else, like... Like a tracking engineer or... Tracking or mixing, like whatever. Like when you're going to work with somebody else who's going to have the power to make your shit sound right or not, what's the criteria? Knowing how to use your DAW very, very, very efficiently and being fast workflow is definitely preferred. Like there's one dude I can think of immediately as Taylor's assistant, Ernie. Taylor Larson, that is. Yeah, Taylor Larson. His, his assistant, Ernie Slinkovich, is like is almost faster at Pro Tools than him now because he does like all of his session setup, like all the prep work and like all, all of that kind of stuff, pretty much all of the editing. And then Taylor will come in and, later and mix everything and do, do his thing to it. That's what you want in an assistant. Yeah. If it were possible right now for this stuff, I would much rather just sit there and play guitar and just have Ernie hit record over and over and over again and then edit my parts together because then I don't have to do it sitting there like hunched over at the computer with the guitar in my lap like that's fucking annoying after a while it hurts my back and I don't want to be like be the one sitting there editing and there's like a breakdown pattern or something like that real time while I'm actually trying to come up with the idea but I mean it's part of the game when you're writing and recording like you have to know how to be able to do that stuff so I don't mind doing it, but when it comes to actually getting like really good, solid takes for a final recording, I definitely would prefer to have an engineer who really knows what he's doing being the one tracking me. I feel like it just goes quicker too because they're you know manning the computer and all you have to do is just focus on playing. The whole efficiency thing, I actually think that that's one of the make or break for a modern mixer and engineer is not just how good are you, but how fast are you? Because people expect you to be fucking fast. And I'm wondering about why you need them to be super efficient. Is it because of how fast your brain kind of moves? Like you need them to be able to keep up with you, right? So that you're not waiting on them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just don't want to sit around waiting and being able to edit parts like as you're going. Because by the, then when you're done tracking, it's also edited. Like you don't have to wait for them to do it later. And if they're fast enough at editing and have done it enough times, they could just do it all like right there as you're tracking the part. At least that's how we that, that's how we do it. That's how it should be done, in my opinion. Do it right on the spot. It's not like drums. Drums. Yes, exactly. Drums are a different game. Yeah, totally different game. John, I want to hear your opinion on this, but my opinion is on guitar. When you put the guitar down and that session is over, whether you're doing rhythms on a song or anything it should sound finished. I don't mean finished mix, but the performance should be finished, meaning if there's going to be edits, they should be done there. You should get up knowing it's done, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. When you're tracking rhythms and you're doubling or quadrupling or whatever it is, are you listening to a guide track that you're trying to match or are you just playing the guitar by itself to maybe drums or a click and then just hoping that it lines up? Or how does that work for you? I would say it's a little bit of both. It kind of depends on the part too. Like if it's a rhythm part, like a pattern or something like that, or a riff, usually I'll track it to click and just drums by itself if I have the drums mapped out already. But if it's a way more intricate kind of thing, like a lead or something where I need to make sure there's not like, you know, like background noise from not muting enough or something like that, then I'll typically record it to a click by itself, like just a click, and then I'll dump it in to where it needs to go in the song. Because it's a lot easier to hear your mistakes that way. Especially if you already know how it's going to go, then in my opinion, I've always had way faster results that way, where I just track it only to a click and then edit it in to where it needs to go. The thing about being able to hear all the details is so crucial. I feel like sometimes when you're tracking and there's like drums and bass going and another guitar, you can kind of get tricked by how cool it feels. I know I've made that mistake a few times. Uh, you get tricked and then it ends up being sloppier than it should be because 
just shit's getting canceled out or swallowed by the other instruments. Like you just can't hear the detail. Yeah, for some stuff, you definitely need to be able to do that. But then every now and then I'll leave like maybe just like one little scuff or something like that, just so people can know it's like actually real and being played. I don't like to leave too much of it, but every I'll leave like at least like one or two of those in there as long as it doesn't like conflict too bad, like an open G string or some shit where that's when it's not actually in the key of the song. Like that's the worst, that type of stuff. <laughs> You know, uh, when I'm tracking shitty guitar players, I literally tape down every single string they're not supposed to be playing. <laughs> I mean, you it's do what you got to do. Yeah, exactly. I always put foam uh, on the springs in the back, too, because no matter how the quality of your guitar, like high-gain tones, that'll get picked up to an extent since it's connected to the bridge and they vibrate. Do you use a fixed bridge? No. Okay. Tracking rhythms on a Floyd has been one of my biggest mistakes I've ever made on a record. Would never do that again. I don't like the locking nuts either. It makes everything sound too tinny, in my opinion. Kind of just like shrill. Do you use locking tuners or something? Yes. All my guitars have locking tuners, but not all the locking nuts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I forget how to wind strings. It happens. <laughs> don't we all? Pretty much if a guitar player is good and they have good finger tone, they could almost make anything sound good. Like, do you actually sit there and work at that? Or did you? I feel like, I don't know if that's something you could necessarily, like, actively focus on getting better. I feel like that's just kind of like, it'll happen gradually as you become better as a guitar player over time. Like, there's definitely phases I went through where I worked on, like, making sure my bends are in key and things like that. Practicing vibrato and stuff like that. But the actual, like, maybe, like, specific tone of what your hands sound like, I don't know if that's something exactly that you could just like get better at right away. It'll just gradually happen over time. How do you balance your speed with economy of motion with picking hard and not hurt yourself? Practice. Okay. Yes. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Yes. <laughs> Stamina and endurance when it comes to that kind of stuff. I feel like one of the things I dislike the most in musicians, in drummers, bass players, guitar players, is where they focus way too much on accuracy, but not on how hard they're playing. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, they might get things accurate, but it just sounds weak. Yes. Basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can't pick like a little bitch. It never really works out very well. You can always <laughs> tell. Like I'll usually, like even sometimes some of my friends, like if I see them playing and I notice that they're doing that, I'll just be like, pick harder. It hasn't happened like recently, but I know it's happened in the past before, especially with like recording or some of the, or even like live, you know, or something like that. And just be like, you should try and like dig in a little bit more. And then it just sounds like it goes from like sounding like, you know, like Jun, Jun, Jun to like Jun, Jun, Jun is like, I guess, a good way to put it. There's more aggressive sounding and thicker. Percussive. Yep. That too. John, you play hard as fuck. Once I learned that Master of Puppets was all down picking, like back when I was in high school, like still a teenager and stuff, I was like, all right, well now I have to learn how to play it like that. And then I just like destroyed my forearm for like a couple weeks straight, trying to be able to play that song front to back, down picking the entire thing. What would go into building up your stamina? Just playing those songs over and over and over again. I mean, obviously you have to listen to your hand. You don't want to like hurt yourself or anything, but you do kind of have to like, there's a middle ground of between like fighting through like the quote unquote pain of it versus like actually like hurting yourself. And then like you have like actual tendonitis or carpal tunnel or something like that. And then the only way to get rid of that is by just not playing and taking ibuprofen and stretching and stuff like that. And that sucks. I've had to deal with that before and it's awful. It's not fun. So you do have to listen to your arm in that respect. What's the line? Is it like, I've heard that when it starts feeling like a sharp pain, that's when you stop. Yeah, that's pretty good rule of thumb. You don't want that happening. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
but I've also had... Avoid the sharp pain. Yeah. I mean, if it gets to the point where, you know, like you just can't physically play it anymore, like you're just, your arm's literally shitting out, that would probably be another good sign too, to just at least take a break for a little bit and maybe come back. Kind of, you kind of have to think about it like work, like, like working out almost in a way. It's like a similar kind of thought process to training like that, where you just need to like, if, you're, if it's really sore, maybe not work it out for a little bit and rest and stretch and then come back later to it. Awesome. Can we talk about your online presence some? Sure. Something that I've always thought was interesting about you is that you always represented yourself super well online and like as you, whereas I think a lot of guitar players don't really think about like their personal brand or anything. I don't know if you've used those words or whatever, or if it came naturally to you, but you've always been really good at knowing how to use social media to get yourself out there is it something that you tried to do or did you just get it or something it's part of the game now so if you're not actively trying to do that like then no one's really probably going to pay attention or notice or know who you are and then you can't keep building but i feel like around the time that i announced that i was leaving chelsea grin and doing a solo album that's when stuff started really picking up and like actively gaining traction almost like exponentially but not quite in a way because, I mean, there's always a teetering point. There's waves. It comes, you know, it goes up and down. But I feel like that's because I just kept posting videos of, like, you know, the phone audio videos of, like, stuff that I was working on and parts like that. And that seemed to really just snowball stuff with the Indiegogo campaign, actively posting material that I was working on and the live phone audio videos of me actually playing guitar. That's when everything started to get, like, a huge uptick or around, like, 2016. How long had you been uh, posting stuff before that uptick happened? Since the platform came out. I think it might have been 2010 or 11 when it first started. I don't think I started actually posting guitar videos, though, until I was in Chelsea Grin. And then I noticed how good of an idea that was. Because that was like, I think that was before like the whole guitar community blew up on Instagram. And that became started to become a thing. Or right, probably approximately around the same time that everyone else was figuring out, like, oh, if I do this, then... It's a really good idea, and it brings more people in. This was back when you can only do 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. You remember that? When it was like you could only post 15 seconds, and some of the bigger name people on there, they were able to post minute-long videos, and I was like, what the fuck? Like, I want to be able to do that. That was during when it was like beta testing phase kind of still for only certain accounts to see how it'll do. But I remember like active, like the first couple ones I posted when they were only 15 seconds long, like, how well it was doing, and I was just like, okay, people follow me because I play guitar, so... I should probably post me playing guitar more. That seems like a good idea. <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that, but that's actually one of the wisest ways to approach social media, I found, is to give people the thing that they like you for. Anytime I do that, it does great. And then anytime that I post something that I like or is funny to me, but is not what people like me for, it does like a fraction of as well. It's not like selling out or anything because you're still posting something that's you, that you work on, that you care about. It's just the thing that people like you for. Yeah. Like, I've even noticed that, like, now since I've started, um, within the past couple of months, I've been doing the Twitch stuff regularly, and I've even already noticed, like, a significant difference with that, because I love playing video games. So if I'm playing video games on there, like, my channel is still very new. Like, I haven't even hit, like, 5K on there yet. But, like, if I'm just gaming, sometimes I'll, like, at the most, have, like, 80 people watching and hanging out but it usually hovers around like 30 to 40 something typically now. But then when I announced that I was doing that like quarantine concert of like just playing all my solo stuff, it peaked at almost 600 people. That's awesome. So it's like, I know what people want to see on there. 
especially after that. And then anytime I'm doing anything that's, you know, Pro Tools orientator, or even if I just have the guitar in my lap in the frame, there's over 100 people in there for anything like that. But if I'm just gaming, it's only like 30 to 45 people. It's a pretty good indicator of what people want to see you do. Yeah, I know what they want to see me do on there, but I like doing the other stuff too. It's like maybe like I don't always feel like, you know, just playing like guitar for like an hour or, or like an hour or two of like stressful ass, really hard material. Like I want to keep that kind of special and have it not be like the only thing that I'm doing on there. Because I do love playing video games and it is cooler to have like the smaller amount of people in there because it's easier to interact with them. One of the guys who's one of my mods on there that's been on, already been been on Twitch for like a long time. Uh, he plays Guitar Hero stuff on there and actually does like re- really well for himself just off Twitch. He was telling me he's like, yeah, having like 500 people in there trying to interact with them is not the vibe. Like, it's a lot easier to do that with you know like 30 or 40 like hardcore fans than say like me trying to actively interact with like 600 people or something like that that are in there watching the show. Well, you can really build a connection with 30 or 40 people. Yeah, it's definitely, it's a different vibe. They're both cool, obviously. Like, you always want, like, to be improving and gaining popularity, but there is something to be said to, like, the the smaller, more, like, kind of intimate things, too, at the same time. Like I said, it's barely, like, two months old for me. Like, I've only been able to earn revenue for, like, a month and a half now, or, like, almost two months from it. So, it is a massive rabbit hole. Like, there's been many many nights now where I, uh, that's been up for hours, like, just getting, like, creating different scenes or like seeing like how this this layout will work with all of my like capture devices and all of that shit because i have like i have two cameras i have my sony and then a gopro up here for like an overhead view of my whole setup and then i have capture devices for three monitors in case i want to use them the chat and like making sure that people can see their names on there because they love doing that too you know like a new follower or a new subscriber or something like that like it's really they people really like seeing their name on the screen and it just gets them more stoked. So getting all that, cramming all of that in and not having it look like cluttered and claustrophobic is not the easiest thing either. There's some trial and error. Yeah, streaming is actually really hard to do well. So the way that I'm doing it now, so I don't have to wear headphones the whole time, I have my monitor feed out of my interface going to my X32 rack, which is honestly the weakest link in my setup. I need something better for a split. But so I have the f- main feed go to there, and then I have two separate buses sent out. One goes to my power amp for my monitors, and then one goes to the streaming computer interface. And then I just have a, an optical noise gate on my microphone that I use for talkback in the stream, so that way nothing's bleeding into it. So I can still use my monitors, and then anytime I want to talk, I just go over to the microphone, and the gate opens, and then I can say what I need to. How long did it take you to figure this out? Honestly, not too long because I had a, um, I was talking to, because you know, Matt Heafy from Trivium, he's massive on Twitch. He like crushes it on there and we follow each other and have talked a little bit about it. So when I decided to start, I just sent him a message and was like, yo, how do I do this? And then he had a, a video breakdown of his setup, which I just use that as like a template for what so whatever else I needed to get to make it work versus like how could I make this work with the gear that I have from like my live setup and shit because the X32 rack is what I use for monitors in your monitors live um, and then I have an actual full X32 console with like a Waves I.O. card and all of that for front of house whenever I'm out so it's like a fully self-contained thing you know for rely on anyone at any venue so I was just like alright how can I make this work and then his setup was just two two separate computers, one for audio, one for streaming, and they both have their own interfaces. So all the audio is hosted on one, and then you send a left-right out of there to this, the streaming computer one, and then that hosts all the streaming software. 
So I got an Asus desktop. That's really sick for gaming, and that's easier to stream from that for gaming too. And I got that. I think a or it's an Apogee Duet that I have, which only has like two ends and two outs. So it's all you need. Yep. So I just run a stereo feed from the X32 to that interface, and then one to my power amp as well, and then the optical noise gate, so there's no bleed. How many computers do you have in there? Three. Okay. There's one for Pro Tools, one for VSTs, and then uh, one for streaming and gaming. It's a good investment to make if you're going to do it, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. And then I just connect all of the other two computers from my Mac over RDC, remote desktop control. So that way, everything's just on one computer. Awesome. Thanks for laying that out. It's some nerd shit. No, it's <laughs> awesome. It's kind of like everything else that we've talked about. A lot of people want to do streaming, but don't realize how much goes into it. Oh, yeah. You make it look easy. So It's not. No, it's definitely not. <laughs> no. We've got a few questions from our audience here I'd like to ask you. Okay. Okay, so Jake McCormick, I've seen you mention before that you managed to keep away from drugs and other crazy stuff during your early days touring. How did you pull this off? Self-control. <laughs> <laughs> Willpower. I mean, I smoke weed uh, and, and drink socially, but that's, that's literally it. I've never done anything past that ever in any regard. I've taken a painkiller to get tattooed before, but that's it. And I had my wisdom teeth removed at 1.2. So they gave me painkillers for that. That's fair. And that's literally it. Yeah. Other than that, I mean, I live in California. It's recreational. And then I or for marijuana and I just drink socially every now and then. It's not frequent. But that's it. All right. Dylan Myhill says, hey, Jason, massive fan of your stuff. When I'm trying to play shreddy stuff, I get to a certain speed and I can feel my left hand fingers starting to lock up and get really stiff. Is there a way around this? Am I doing something wrong? I pay attention a lot to my right hand and make sure there's no tension. But how do I do that with the left hand? Maybe his thumb's too high or something. So hand position. Yeah. If your thumb's like really high over the neck, like your whole inside of your hand is like shoved into the back of the guitar and usually forces it to like be at a 45 degree angle as opposed to like perfectly flush, if that makes sense. So when it's at an angle like that, they're usually like more smushed together. So his thumb might be too high. That's what it sounds like to me without having seeing him play. Yeah. It's hard to diagnose yeah. something without <laughs> seeing the or hearing the problem. Yeah. Okay. Question from Christian Slater. Hey, Jason, when transitioning to become a full-time musician right out of high school, how did you successfully cope with that? What lifestyle changes had to be made in order to truly pursue music? Well, I, I did that before high school ended. I was just like, fuck it, I'm out. But you have to have a promising opportunity, like one that you know that will most likely work. Yeah, you can't just drop it. Yeah, you can't just be like, all right, this is it, I'm doing it. And then the, you don't have an actual like outlet to do it in. I was fortunate enough to where I had a gig, a good offer for it. That was All Shall Perish. Like when Chris Story left, they posted that they needed a lead guitar player. I sent them videos and then they emailed me back within like 12 hours and we're just like, fuck yeah. And then a few months later, I was out in California with them practicing to go on like two tours right away. And that was like all spur of the moment, right email, right post, right time. And it was a very promising opportunity. So that was an obvious duh to go and do that. But if I hadn't had that, I would have finished high school and probably gone to Berkeley, which wouldn't have been a bad thing either. But I'm way more okay with how things have played out now versus going the, the school route. I also feel like I've learned a lot more real world and from like friends like you and Taylor and like all this and actually just out there doing it a lot more than I would have sitting in a classroom for like four years. Not, not to say that school isn't, isn't good, but 
I do genuinely think that I probably wouldn't have learned a lot of the stuff that I know had it not gone the way that it did. Well, I mean, the only reason you would go to school was if you didn't have the opportunities yet, but you would have left Berkeley too if those opportunities came up. Exactly. And that was the only reason I wanted to go there was to find musicians that wanted to play what I did at the same caliber to create a band and do what I'm already doing. So I kind of just like bypassed that step, fortunately. Yeah, good move. <laughs> People always leave Berkeley. <laughs> yeah, they said that they're at, when my parents went to the orientation, because I did get accepted and I had a partial scholarship to the school, because this was all like my junior year of high school before the All Shall Perish stuff even happened. Like I already had that planned out and it was going to happen. But at the orientation, they said that they for my, by my parents went to, uh, before that summer camp ended that I was at, they told them that they're proud of their dropout rate. <laughs> Because the, their careers take off and they have to go do it. That's how it works. If you actually graduate Berkeley, like there's a stigma there <laughs> about the people who actually graduate. I mean, I know people who have graduated and gone on to have careers, but typically if you're going to get a career and you go to Berkeley, you're going to drop out. That's like the norm. I think Petrucci's son went to Berkeley and he graduated. And when he did that, they posted, he posted a picture of them together and said, well, at least one of us graduated. <laughs> <laughs> Because he didn't. I'm pretty sure they all dropped him, Myung, and Portnoy all dropped out. They did drop out. I heard they dropped out pretty quickly. Vi dropped out. James Malone dropped out. Gus G dropped out. Pretty sure Mayer did too. Yeah. I dropped out. Like <laughs> Everybody drops out. Mm -hmm. I was accepted and had scholarship and never went. So it's kind of like you dropped out. <laughs> I just got a funny email. I, I'm doing online lessons right now, and I, you know, I have a copy and paste reply with all the terms and pricing and all of that stuff right there. And this kid just said, like, I've already, like, yesterday I gave lessons from 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. Like, it was like a full, like, eight-hour day. And this kid just emailed me back and said, your rates are pretty high. I'd be willing to pay you 100 for the first-hour lesson. And if that goes well, I consider continuing at your normal rates. Please respond. Are you responding? Not right now. I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> wow that's the fucking balls dude i'm not gonna say his name but that's hysterical <laughs> we get hit up for stuff like that all the time about like <laughs> we'll cut deals for people in the industry like in the industry anybody who like lost work through covid19 we'll give them free accounts and stuff but i don't like the idea of negotiating on your services because you devalue them, basically. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm going to email back the guy and say, fuck no. I mean, I'm not going to say fuck, but I'm going to say, no. If you want an hour lesson, you pay my rate, just like all my other students. You're not more important than them. It's also a fuck you to the other students if you do that. Exactly, too. It's like, yeah, so I'm not going to do that. Like when people ask me to do guest solos and stuff, I tell them my astronomically high rate because I don't want to be doing a ton of them. And I'd rather focus on my own material. But if you're going to pay me a stupid amount of money, then it's worth it to me to do a guest solo. But unless you can pay my stupid high fee that I'm asking, it's not worth my time. I'm sorry. Because I don't want to be doing a ton of them. I don't want to seem like a whore. I was just talking about that with someone on the URM podcast. I call it the fuck you fee. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's for projects that you don't want to take necessarily because it's not like the priority. But... If the price is right, then it'll make sense, basically. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's usually what I tell everyone at first with, when, it come, when, they, when they send an email asking about guest solos. I've gotten some email backs where like, well, that's higher than our entire budget. And I'm just like... You want it or not? Sorry, man. <laughs> like, I've already been paid this rate multiple times, so I'm not going to devalue myself and just waste my time when I could be focused on my own stuff. If you've been paid it, then you're worth it. 
Yeah. The market decides what you're worth. If people will pay it, then there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had I've only I've only had a few people since that first guy that paid me the really high rate, and then ever since then I was just like, all right, I'm not going lower than this. The only way I could potentially go lower than this is if it's only like you know 20 or 30 seconds solo or something like that. Then it's then I can kind of like justify going to a lower price because it takes half the amount of time and effort. Like I just wrote a solo for uh, Jared Dines and Howard Jones are doing a collab, and Jared asked me to do a solo on that. So of course I'm going to do it because that's going to be huge exposure. They have a lot of fans that don't even know who I am. And then I'll be able to sell tabs of it. So I don't want to be paid for something like that because it's just a good idea for everyone. Like uh, that Family Jewels kid or a guy on YouTube that does a lot of the video game covers, like music covers and stuff like that. Like uh, I just did a solo for him on the Fairy Fountain theme from Zelda. And it turned out really sick. And he's been promoting my Sterling by Music Man guitar, the new one that just came out. So that also makes a bunch of sense because his platforms are also bigger than mine. And he's been helping promote my guitar for us. So, of course, I'm going to do a solo for him, and then I can just put tabs up and make money off that instead. So you can't make shit off music now. You need the music, though, to create these other outlets, which is just how things have evolved. Yeah, I think the more musicians accept that, the better off they'll be. Like, stop complaining about Spotify. Yeah. There are ways to make money. Yeah, I've given up on that. I just pay 25 a month for the highest grade of title now. Oh, dude, it's worth it. Yeah, if I am going to pay for it, I want it to sound good. So I just do that. I do the highest tier of title that they offer. So do I. I know you got to go. I think that these are topics for another episode sometime, knowing your own worth as a musician. Yeah, I, I felt us going down another snowball right here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We could probably talk about this for two more hours, but I'd love to talk to you about it sometime because I think that... Yeah, I'm down to come back. Yeah, knowing your own worth is like such a weird topic for musicians because musicians typically feel weird about charging money, but then also you got to make money. And like knowing how to figure out what you're worth, what you're not worth, like when you're delusional, when you can ask a high price, like all that stuff, there's like, there's an art to that whole thing. I feel like we should talk about that next time. I'm down. Awesome. Well, dude, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure having you on and great to catch up again. Yeah, man. Finally seeing each other. Yeah, right? Even though <laughs> it's through a, through a screen, but we've been at past two NAMs and just tried to meet up and it just never happened. Honestly, dude, that's what I love about podcasts. The URM podcast too is uh, it's like a chance to talk to friends that I never get to hang out with. Like when else would it happen? Exactly. I like that. All right, cool. Well, have fun with your stream, dude. Thank you again. Yeah, definitely.